You okay, buddy? Yeah. You sure? You're breathing heavy. I'm okay. Good. Relax. To start, I just need some basic information. Basic? Simple things. Okay. Let's start with an easy one. What's your name? Roy. Roy what? Fremier. Well, Mr. Fremier, how old are you? Sixteen. Go to school? No. Why not? Don't know. Just don't. Live alone? No. You live with your mother and your brother Bill, don't you? Yeah. Good, good. You're doing fine. But now I'll need to ask you some harder questions. Okay? Can you handle that? Yeah. Good boy. Your brother is in some hot water, isn't he? He's being accused of something bad. Accused? He did something bad to a little girl. Jenny Connor. Oh. To be frank, Mr. Fermier, I think you might know something about that. That's why you're here today. I think you have a story about Bill and the little girl. I... Don't be shy. I... Relax. You aren't in any trouble. Just answer me one question. Did you see Bill and Jenny go into the woods? I didn't see them. Really? I saw Jenny, but Bill was home. You say you saw Jenny go into the woods, but Bill was at home? Yeah. Mr. Vermeer, I find that a wee bit hard to believe. You know, we found Bill's jacket in the woods. We found his jacket soaked with a pint of blood. Jenny's blood. We found her too. Funny enough, she was just a few yards away. We took some pictures. Wanna see? Pictures? Of the body. Wanna see? No. No, I expect you don't. They're not pretty. But nevertheless, they beg a question. What was Jenny's blood doing on Bill's jacket? And why did we have a dozen witnesses claim to have seen them leave together from the football game? Witnesses? Mr. Vermeer, I know you followed them from the field. We have it on CCTV. So I ask you again, did you see Bill take Jenny into the woods? I... Did you? I didn't. I think you're lying. Bill was home. We go together from football. Bill said take Jenny home. You took Jenny? It was cold. Bill said take Jenny and take my jacket. I said let's go into the woods. Jenny said no. It made me mad. I pushed her. She hurt her head. What? I hit her in the woods. I was scared. I didn't want to get in trouble. She woke up. She was mad and screaming, so I hit her. I hit her so that she would shut up. And the jacket? Jacket? Bill's jacket. I hid it. Where? Under my bed. Christ. No, not under your bed. Um. Think. For once in your life, fucking think. You hid it in the woods. I hid it in the woods. Yeah, don't forget. It's important. Sorry. When they ask for real, you have to remember. I'm sorry for swearing. I hate seeing you made a fool of, is all. I know, Bill. I shouldn't have read it. It was a normal day, and it was just one of the numerous posts I clicked on. It wasn't weird or anything. Just another post. Another random scary story that was made up by an anonymous user. It wasn't even that terrifying. 
But after reading that post, it was as if something had changed in the air. I can't even explain it. The way the air seemed to be breathing with me as I read the post creeped me out. In. Out. Can you feel it? The air became heavy, pressing against your chest. Breathe again. Breathe slowly and then you'll hear it. The random sounds that you weren't aware of. Listen closely. No, don't tear your eyes away from the screen. Don't look at it. Just listen. Don't reveal that you know that it's there. Just listen. Listen closely to the background noise. It will seem like a normal sound. Maybe an electric hum, the sound of your pets, or maybe even insects. But it will sound unnatural. Can you hear it? After you hear it, please, 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 don't look at your reflection. No, not only your mirror, any object that can reflect light. Even if the reflection is just a hazy blur. Avoid anything at all where you can see your reflection. Because if you do, you will see it's behind you. And you won't be able to help yourself. You will look at it. It's a compulsion. Like the way you can see at the corner of your eyes. You will see it. And once you do, it will know that you know about it. It's hard, isn't it? That's why I shouldn't have read it. And you shouldn't have read it too. I love you, mom. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. Hang on, I heard something downstairs. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cop said he's some escaped serial killer, and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Yes, Mom. It's on the news now. I'll keep the doors locked. Messages are displayed in chronological order, with the most recent at the top. Yes, Mom. It's on the news now. I'll keep the doors locked. The cop said he's some escaped serial killer, and he's been breaking into homes around the area. Don't worry, Mom. I'm safe. I love you. The cops are already here looking for him. They'll catch him. Hang on. I heard something downstairs. I'm hiding in the closet. I hope he didn't hear me. I hear sirens, but they're far away. I can hear footsteps on the stairs. I think he's outside my room. I love you, Mom. I have a little problem. First off, my name is Toby. I'm a middle-aged widower with one beautiful daughter and a modest home in the suburb close to one of the main cities. It's been a bit of a struggle being a single father and I'll admit to getting the odd stare from some people. But after I explain to them about my wife and what happened, most of them understand and let me continue on with my day. My neighbor is normally the worst for this though. She keeps telling me I should put my daughter into foster care or that I'm secretly a pedophile. She seems to be unable to see how it's affecting me and my daughter. I think she just doesn't like the idea of a man raising a little girl 
She thinks I'm going to push her into some kind of role or something, but I would never do anything to my little cupcake. Oh, I should probably tell you about her, shouldn't I? Well, her name is Alice. My daughter, not my neighbor. She's about seven years old now, and she loves to play outside. The moment I open the door, she tends to just run out as fast as she can to go meet new people. She loves meeting people and tends to run over to them and tug on their hands to say hello. You see, sadly Alice is mute and can't really talk at all. She can make hand gestures and faces, but she doesn't know any sign language yet, so we kind of have to guess what she wants a lot of the time. I always explain this to people she meets and introduce her and myself to them. We end up having to chat before I have to grab Alice's hand and drag her back home. If I didn't, she would spend the whole night outside. I take her home and pull her downstairs into her room and put her to bed. I give her medicine to put her to sleep and put the chains on her hands and feet so she doesn't kick or fight like she used to. She used to scream as well. Cutting her tongue out has fixed that little problem, but not before the neighbor heard her. After she stops fighting and the drugs have made her relax, I use my scalpel and get to work on Alice. The demons that are in Alice are what took my lovely Stacy away from me. So I will simply have to cut them out piece by piece. Which reminds me, my little problem. How do you deal with a nosy neighbor? I have a request. First off, hi, my name is Daniel and I have a small request for you all. I want you to smile a little more if you would. You see, I'm a dentist and I love to see people's teeth. I've made a career of fixing them, so I tend to like seeing my work and other dentist work on display. The world is such a better place if you smile. It shows everyone that you care and that life isn't so hard. Some people have the most wonderful of smiles and they deserve to be put on display. I love seeing my clients' happy faces. It lets me see how good of a job I am doing and how perfect those teeth of theirs really are. Oh, how I wish I could take those grins and hang them on the wall for all to see. Truly, they are works of art. I often stand outside my clinic just watching people, just looking at those little smiles, just so I can get a glimpse at those lovely little things. The best of them I invite into my shop for a complimentary clean because I can't help but want to get a closer look to just savor the sight of them. I will admit, sometimes I can't help myself. I take longer than I need to clean them just so I can keep looking at them. I just want to see those perfect clean teeth a little longer. I can't always take them home, unfortunately. People get so attached to their teeth, but on occasion, I have managed to get them to give them up. Pulling teeth isn't as hard as everyone thinks. Most people would use anesthetic, but I find a couple of the leather straps and a good pair of pliers to do the trick. The gargled screams they make can be so distracting, but luckily, most of them pass out from the pain before I get to the molars, and that's when I can really get to pulling. Some smiles are just too good to lose, but it's hard to find them a lot of the time. So help me out. Smile, will you? Someone banged at my door. My boyfriend and I exchanged puzzled glances before he chirped up happily, pizza. He got off the couch as he grabbed the remote to pause the movie. He came back but with a square box, not a pizza box. 
I stared at the box in his hand. What's that? He handed it to me. A package for you. I took it. There's no shipping label. Just my name in black sharpie. Taking a knife, I cut the tape and opened it slowly. I removed most of the packing peanuts to find a scuffed up looking magic eight ball. I picked it up and shook it and turned it over. The little thing flipped before it landed on the number 32. I was confused. I did it again and a third time, shaking it a couple more times, but the answer was always 32. I thought you were supposed to ask the eight ball a question, then it answers like yes or no or something. Damien shrugged and dug into the box while I continued to shake the eight ball. Hey, look at this. He pulled out a note. The Wonder 8-Ball goes around and around, so pass it quickly or you'll be out. If you're the one that holds it last, you are out. He scratches his head and handed me the messily written note. I took it as I passed him the 8-Ball. This is kind of creeping me out, I said, checking the note. He shook the 8-Ball and examined it, just as I did before, and then the doorbell rang. Oh, that must be the pizza. He tossed the ball back into the box and I stared at it before placing the note on top and closing it. We resumed our movie and once it was over we went to bed, but I couldn't sleep that night. Something fell off. I tried to wake up Damien, but he was dead asleep. I don't know how long it was, but I eventually fell asleep. When I woke up, it was still dark. I got up to the bathroom where I went to brush my teeth. Only when I heard a thump in the apartment did I stop. I quietly walked over to Damien, refusing to look away from the door. I shook him lightly. Damien. But he didn't budge. I decided to grab the gun in our nightstand. I cocked it and readied myself. I walked slowly and gripped the door handle. I took a deep breath, swung it open, flipping the lights. I held the gun steady as I scanned the apartment. Once I was sure that no one was there, I lowered the gun inside. I turned back to look at Damien's sleepy body. Idiot, I could have died. I took a step forward and my feet made contact with the ball. My heart froze as I stared at it. I picked up the ball and turned it over and it was now showing 33. It has become a tradition. Every summer, ever since I turned nine, I would go to visit my dad and his girlfriend. They lived in a small bungalow house that was literally out in the middle of nowhere. We would eat my dad's famous gumbo, go fishing, and then camping. I loved going to see my dad. Something about getting away from the city life and just enjoying the simple things, like being a small farmer, made things more bearable. I pull up to his driveway to see him and Sandy waiting for me. I jump out of the car and hug Sandy. When I went to hug my dad, he swung me around happily. Welcome home, baby girl. When my feet touched the ground, I was excited. Are we going to have my famous gumbo? Well, of course we are. I know it's your favorite and I always make it for you when you come see me. I clap my hands together and my dad grabbed my luggage. Come on, honey. Let's eat. I'm sure you're hungry. I could hardly wait. 
I set up the table as my dad brought over a huge orange pot that he always made his gumbo in. Sandy brought over some dinner rolls and the aroma was heavenly. He poured me a large helping and I eagerly grabbed it. I took one bite and sighed. Tastes like summer. My dad laughed and I continued to chow down. My gumbo was not nearly as good. I said pulling the shrimp tail off. My dad chuckled, winking. It's because I got a secret ingredient. After dinner, we all cleaned up and played a few board games. Then I finally flopped onto my bed. I woke up when I heard rustling. I opened the door to investigate and I saw my dad leaving the house. I followed him and he went out to the barn where the horses were. I kept my distance as he moved a bunch of the hay bales revealing a trap door. He opened it up and left the hatch open as he took his lantern down. I could hear him cursing as I neared. The smell became rancid and I had to cover my nose. I peeked down and I could see three people chained up against the wall. Two young girls and a young boy. They were no older than 15. They were naked and had duct tape over their mouths. My father walked out of my line of sight before coming back with a machete in one hand. Sorry, I need to make more gumbo, he said as he approached one of the girls. The girl jerked violently, shaking her head, and I had to act fast, so I screamed out, Dad, no! He jerked up and stared at me with wide eyes. I want to try him next, not her. I fostered animals in my spare time. I took care of the wounded, and once they were back on their feet, I would return them into the wild. I guess it was kind of a hobby for me. They told me that there was someone in need of help in my pond. A small human laying on a lily pad, no bigger than my thumb. I scooped her up and she didn't move or try to swim away. She just laid there, lifelessly, in my hand. I took her home and made a small bed out of tissues and placed her in a shoebox. I left the lid open as I went to bed that night. When I woke up, she was still in the box. I would bring her bits of food, but she wouldn't touch it. This continued for almost three days. I worried that she would starve, so I started to tell her about the food and how it's made. She would turn and look at me sometimes, but she didn't eat. I kept trying until one night I made spaghetti. It was in the middle of talking when I tilted the plate too much. A meatball rolled off and stopped before her. She picked up the meatball covered in marinara sauce and took a bite out of it. Her first words to me were, yummy. She became livelier as the days passed and she would even sit there on my shoulder. I was worried that she would fall so I started buying shirts with pockets. She was with me everywhere I went. I bought her a dollhouse, doll sized clothing and even a small bed so she can sleep. She always cheered me up, and before I knew it, my whole life revolved around her. One day when I was eating dinner, she finally told me why she was outside in the middle of the pond. She told me that she had a family, but they were murdered. She had escaped by swimming away, and told me, There are others like me. They hunt and eat us. They're cannibals. That night I felt anxious and sat up in my bed and stared at the dollhouse. She was sleeping soundly in her bed. I got up and sat in the kitchen for god knows how long. I had to stop them somehow. Before I knew it, I had fallen asleep on the table. 
I jerked awake and headed back to my room. I opened the door and peeked into her room, only to see her missing. My heart stopped. I looked closer and there were specks of red all over. A small man about her size stood in the corner of her room, hunched over, and its face was completely distorted. He smiled, teeth sharp and crooked, mishapping red eyes locked with mine as he held out a gold nugget about the size of a dollar coin. Here's your half, as promised. You know, it's really funny. In a maximum security prison filled with murderers and rapists, the worst thing that they can do is leave you completely alone. Solitary confinement. The human brain needs input, or it quickly descends into a horrifying madness of its own company. In 2086, when the world government fell into dictatorship, capital punishment became very common. However, it was solitary confinement that people feared. That was reserved just for treason. I spent my working life making solitary confinement cells and carrying out the confinement. Here's how it works. The cells are molded to exactly fit the condemned. They are human-shaped coffins, arms out to the side at a 30-degree angle, legs at 45 degrees apart. For their insertion process, the traitors are sedated. The eyes, the ears, the mouth are not damaged, but are all sealed permanently shut. An automatic breathing tube is inserted into the throat. Three IV lines are inserted to feed nutrients. We use three lines because of mechanical failure on one. Catheters are inserted to handle waste. The condemned are sealed and buried in a very public trader graveyard with enough supplies to last 80 years, but to be considered dead from that day. Nasty, right? Well, that's been my job for the last 20 years, and I'm pretty numb to the idea of it. One person a day entered the trader's graveyard. This was so the person's story could be featured on that evening news, along with their frenzied begging for a pardon. It hasn't caused me distress in many years. That was until last week when I was convicted of treason. I can't really argue, I'm guilty. But after seeing the things I've seen, it is surprising I turned to murder. The regime needs to be brought down. This barbaric practice of solitary confinement needs to end now, but it will take a better man than me to achieve that. Today, I woke up from my sedation, my eyes and mouth sealed shut, deafening silence and dazzling blackness greeted my panicked brain. Fight or flight response kicked in and I chose between zero options. I couldn't move an inch, even my fingers were molded in place. I just kept thinking about all the people I put down here, all the things I wish I'd done differently. I couldn't have been down here for more than a week and I would have chose death if I could. I would give anything to take back those treasons I committed, the 7,000 people I killed. I only did that to save others from untold suffering. I did it when they were sedated, a syringe of air into their veins to cause cardiac arrest. One murder each day for 20 years. It's just me alive down here, living life of a traitor. I've been having blackouts for almost a year now, but no one seems to notice. The first time was at my 16th birthday party that my family threw for my cousin, Adam. 
His dad got him a DVD of a horror movie he loved and we decided to watch it since only Adam had seen it before. I was really looking forward to watching the movie but I fell asleep just when it was getting started. When I woke up the end credits were rolling. Everyone was talking about their favorite parts of the movie. Dennis was more into it than any of us, Adam said about me, and at the time I assumed it was a joke. For a while, I thought I was falling asleep at strange times. Then, in geography class, I blacked out like I always did. When I woke up, however, I looked down to see a full page of notes on the lesson, all in my handwriting. It was like I wasn't actually gone, just running on autopilot. I tried to keep track of when I blacked out to see if I could figure out what was causing it. But then I'd just fall asleep and wake up to find my records missing or destroyed. I'd take notes on my arm, fall asleep, then find them scrubbed away. Something was trying to stop me from understanding it. I could feel myself losing grip on reality and I didn't think anyone would believe me. Eventually I figured it out. The pattern was both simple and cruel. Anything that I felt refreshing was being taken away from me. Anything that relaxed and recharged me was being stolen. I would get the physical benefits of downtime, but not the experience. My stomach would be full after the blackouts, but I didn't get to enjoy the meal. It made life miserable. Yesterday, I finally broke down and told Adam everything while I was at his house. We were hanging out a while while our parents were at the movies and when he asked me if something was wrong, I just lost it. I told him that I was having a breakdown, and he offered to help. Adam called our parents, but none of them answered. We knew what theater our parents were at, so we decided to take the bus there and tell our parents what was going on. We took our seats on the bus, and Adam put his hand on my shoulder. We'll figure this out, Dennis. Don't worry. I was so relieved, I could barely hold back my tears. I finally reached out for help, and someone was there for me. I closed my eyes just for a moment and he was gone. I was on a bus, but it wasn't the same one. I was the only passenger. I looked down on my arm and saw something written on it in my own handwriting. They'll never find him. Don't make me do that again. Good morning, sunshine. Time to wake up. I open my eyes to see Nurse Judy, ready to give me my morning injection. I sit on the bed and roll up my pajama sleeve. I feel the needle under my skin and the medication flowing inside my veins. The nurse gives me a wide smile. Good girl. You can go to the canteen now and have breakfast with your friends. Friends. I don't have friends here. My friends are almost 60 miles away, enjoying life, learning new stuff, making out at parties certainly not spending their youth in a psychiatric ward. My parents put me there. It was after another anxiety attack at school. I lost control and tried to do something stupid. Now everything seems stupid to me. I pass by nutsy Nora's room. Her yelling is impossible to ignore. She keeps screaming, Kelly and Jenna! Over and over again. I see two doctors rushing into a room with a set of tranquilizers. This place is full of people like her. I don't think I belong here. I enter the canteen and hear a loud, Surprise! I look around to see all the other patients gathered around a cake with numbered candles, one and seven, and an inscription, Happy Birthday Robin. 
Right. It's my 17th birthday. Yay. I totally forgot. I forced myself to smile and blow out the candles. The cake tastes like soap or a cough syrup. I hide both candles in my pocket when no one's watching. I guess it's the only gift I can count on today. I stop one of the nurses on my way back to my room. I ask if my parents are going to come see me. She shrugs and walks away without saying a word. Bitch. As I lay in bed, I stretch out my arms and look at my hands. They look so weird, so damn weird. Maybe it's a side effect of one of those medications. Nurse Judy interrupts my contemplation. She storms in with the afternoon's dosage of pills. How are you feeling, my dear? Did you like the birthday surprise? She asks with an annoying sweet smile. Yeah, I forgot today's the day. She takes my hand and says, Oh, don't worry, darling. It happens to everybody. As she holds my hand, I ask her why my skin looks so strange. Nurse Judy gives me a sympathetic gaze. I think it's normal at your age. Don't you think so, sweetie? Is she trying to make a fool of me? But I'm only 17, I said imploringly. I don't know any other teenagers with hands like these. Just look. I take the candles out of my pocket and almost rub them in her face. You see? One in seven. Seventeen. Judy gently takes the candles from my shaking hands. Robin, it's not seventeen. Let me show you the right order. It's seven and one. Seventy-one. It's been years, maybe decades, since the last time I've seen anyone. I looked down. My fin was beginning to decay. My time was running out. As I broke the surface, I could see a large boat in the distance. Swimming closer, I saw a family of three on the boat. I poked my head just above the water as a little girl, no older than eight, saw me and yelled out, Daddy, Ariel is in the water. I quickly dipped back into the water and followed the boat at a safe distance, every so often poking my head out of the water to reveal myself to the little girl. And without fail, she kept calling her parents to come over and see. The boat finally stopped and I saw some fishing lines drop from the front of the boat. Good. I got close to the boat as I ascended. I held my index finger to my lips, hoping that the little girl would understand. When she saw me, she was about to speak, but then she covered her mouth and nodded. She had a little pink life vest on, big bright blue eyes, and soft blonde hair that bounced around her cute face. Is your name Ariel? She bounced up and down. I thought about the little mermaid, something that I haven't seen in a long time, and nodded. But you're old. Her words stung me. I scowled, but quickly masked it with a smile. I waved to her to come into the water, patting the surface, making teeny splish splash noises. And she stared with uncertainty until I raised my fin to entice her. My fins, though decaying, were still a vibrant purple. Her eyes lit up and she jumped into the water. As she did, I unbuckled the vest from her and tossed it aside. I patted my back and she climbed on, looking nervous, wrapping her little arms around my neck. I glanced over my shoulder, holding my nose and she mimicked me by taking a deep breath as we dove under. It became darker the further we went. My heart was racing when I pulled her hands away and turned towards her. I opened my mouth and my jaw extended outward. 
the skin on my cheeks ripping as my jaw becomes unhinged. My teeth start to grow, long and pointed, like an angler's. My nails became jagged and sharp. I saw the horror on her face as I lunged at her, seeking my teeth into her little neck. Little air bubbles escaped her as she tried to scream, but I consumed her. When I came to, I was looking up at the sky. I could hear seagulls nearby and feel the waves crashing on my legs, but I couldn't move my body. I laid there for a while before I heard someone yell in the distance, and soon enough I heard footsteps approaching me. A man hovered over me. Are you okay, little girl? I always told Sarah and our children that I was only afraid of death. Nothing else frightened me, not even heights or spiders, only the inevitability of one day facing my own mortality. I don't fear anymore. No, I welcome it. I beg for it in these everlasting, unending moments. There is no rest for me, as I can't sleep. I am forced to stay awake and listen from my resting place, accompanied in this void by the constant beating of my heart. It's a curse, and I don't know what I did to deserve such a fate. My family can't hear me because they believe that I'm already dead. I hear them when they visit me, though. They treat my resting place as a confessional, sharing their most intimate thoughts and beliefs, as though they are speaking to no one at all. But no, I hear them. I have no choice. It is a small gift that, over these years, these visits have become less frequent. Sarah was the first one to stop visiting. She begged for forgiveness and understanding as she had finally relented to our children's wishes and moved on from our union. Their stepfather was kind to them, Sarah told me, and they are both on the path of truly seeing him as a father. I'm sure you would want me to move forward, she told me, unable to hear my silent protest. He keeps me safe. He makes me happy. Daggers to my still beating heart. I don't think I've wished for death more than I did that day, if only to end my constant suffering. Michael was the second one to stop visiting. He admitted to hating me for not being there to teach him how to be a man. He blamed me for his own immaturity. It pained my heart when Rene stopped by recently to hear from my resting place that my daughter walked down the aisle with her stepfather instead of me that she was expecting her first child in the coming months. She had the audacity to pray that I would be there to watch over my granddaughter, guiding her as she enters the world. I am so desperate to leave. I spit on her prayers. Renee believed in her more candid moments of confession that she was the only one to care for me after all these years. She saw her more frequent visits to my resting place as a badge of honor, something to brag to her friends about because it made her a good person. If she wished to honor her father's memory, she would have pulled the plug years ago. But of course, she insists that I wouldn't want that, which I suppose is my own fault. He was only afraid of one thing, she tells the nurses. I know I'll never wake up, but this is what my father wants. I've been having blackouts for almost a year now, but no one seems to notice. The first time was at the 16th birthday party that my family threw for my cousin, Adam. His dad got him a DVD of a horror movie he loved, and we decided to watch it since only Adam had seen it before. 
I was really looking forward to watching the movie, but I fell asleep just when it was getting started. When I woke up, the end credits were rolling. Everyone was talking about their favorite parts of the movie. Dennis was more into it than any of us, Adam said about me, and at the time, I assumed it was a joke. For a while, I thought I was falling asleep at strange times. Then, in geography class, I blacked out like I always did. When I woke up, however, I looked down to see a full page of notes on the lesson, all in my handwriting. It was like I wasn't actually gone, just running on autopilot. I tried to keep track of when I blacked out to see if I could figure out what was causing it. But then, I'd just fall asleep and wake up to find my records missing or destroyed. I'd take notes on my arm, fall asleep, then find them scrubbed away. Something was trying to stop me from understanding it. I could feel myself losing grip on reality and I didn't think anyone would believe me. Eventually I figured it out. The pattern was both simple and cruel. Anything that I felt refreshing was being taken away from me. Anything that relaxed and recharged me was being stolen. I would get the physical benefits of downtime, but not the experience. My stomach would be full after the blackouts, but I didn't get to enjoy the meal. It made life miserable. Yesterday, I finally broke down and told Adam everything while I was at his house. We were hanging out a while while their parents were at the movies, and when he asked me if something was wrong, I just lost it. I told him that I was having a breakdown, and he offered to help. Adam called our parents, but none of them answered. We knew what theater our parents were at, so we decided to take the bus there and tell our parents what was going on. We took our seats on the bus, and Adam put his hand on my shoulder. We'll figure this out, Dennis. Don't worry. I was so relieved, I could barely hold back my tears. I finally reached out for help, and someone was there for me. I closed my eyes just for a moment, and he was gone. I was on a bus, but it wasn't the same one. I was the only passenger. I looked down on my arm and saw something written on it, in my own handwriting. They'll never find him. Don't make me do that again. A young boy from our town died recently and I can't get it out of my mind. This isn't just a random face I glanced at the newspaper or saw on a local newscast. No, this is different. I've seen this boy before. He was in my sister's grade. He lived a few blocks away on the main street of the small town. I've definitely seen this boy before. I saw him occasionally while picking up my sister from school. I saw him at the local supermarket with his mom and at a skate park near my job. I saw him riding his bike tirelessly around our neighborhood for hours on end. I've seen this boy many times. I wish I would have saw him the night when I sped through the crosswalk. If I saw him then, maybe I could stop seeing him now. I used to hate being an only child, but then I met Jacob Spencer. The kid has six siblings, all much younger than him, who he had to take care of while his mother was working three jobs to keep them fed. He never had free time, never got a good night's rest, never seemed happy. That boy was just a ball of stress and fatigue every time I saw him at school. When I crossed paths with Jacob a few months back, he was walking home from the center of town 
I was heading back to my place in the same direction, riding my bicycle down the street when I saw him rubbing his temples and cursing to himself. I cruised up to him and eased on my brakes. Hey Jake, long time no see. You alright? No Kenny, he snapped. I just got laid off and no one in this town is hiring. I don't have a car, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Hey, no worries pal, I told him. Listen, I had the same problem a while back, but I got a job a few miles out of town, at a gas station, on the highway. I have to bike there, but it's not that bad. I don't have a bike, Jacob said, dismissing my suggestion. You can borrow my old one if you like, I offered. The chain is a little loose, but the tires are fine. Jacob looked up at me, almost confused by my generosity. You do that? Of course, I promised. Here, my place is a couple minutes away. I'll let you ride it around, see if it works out for you. That afternoon, Jacob and I rode bikes all around town for a few hours. He was all smiles. After we returned to my place, Jacob took a moment to gather himself before telling me something that I'll never forget. I've never felt more free, Kenny. Not once. Not ever. I have to pay you back for this. No need, man, I said. You keep that bike. Make some good use of it. And I shit you not, he cried right in front of me. He told me how much it meant to him. How he promised his mom that he'd keep the family together on her deathbed. How running into me felt like a blessing because now he had the means to keep the promise. We parted as friends and I felt honored to have been a helping hand to someone in need. I heard about Jacob's death a few days later. Apparently, he was riding his new bike along the highway when he lost control of the bike while going downhill and weaved directly into a semi's path. Last I heard, the Spencer kids were all in foster care and keeping them together wasn't a priority for the state. Spencer made a promise to keep his family together in a misguided act of kindness, I accidentally broke that promise for him. If you've ever passed through Ashwood, Oregon, chances are you haven't noticed it. Maybe you stopped by and bought a snack at our general store or used our restrooms before moving on to Salem or Eugene. Maybe you spent the night at a family's motel. You wouldn't remember it though. It's a highway town, a rest stop, nothing special. We notice you, but you don't notice us. Some days, everyone who passes by keeps going and no one stops. It's so common that it's not even worth mentioning. It happens all the time. But when last Wednesday came and no one even passed by, we sure as hell noticed. My father and a few others drove down the highway checking to see if the road had been closed. Rumors swirled. Some thought that we had been caught between road work on both sides. Others assumed that we had been quarantined. None of our phones worked and the radios were all static. So you could imagine that those were the more tame theories. When one of the patrollers got back that night, he said that he had gone as far as Millsburg. Between here and there, every other highway town seemed normal, but Millsburg was abandoned. Ran into someone who lives near Freeway Lakes on the way back. He told us. He'd gone all the way to Salem, not a soul in sight. My dad had gone south, planning to go as far as Eugene. He never came back. And just like that, two of Oregon's biggest cities were ghost towns. 
Over 300,000 people were unaccounted for, my dad included. One patroller said that the ranch he'd stopped by was completely abandoned, animals included. Other patrollers hadn't seen any wildlife along the roads either. Alien abduction or invasion became the prevailing theory. This weekend, a couple of patrollers didn't come back. No one's checking the roads anymore. Yesterday morning, we woke up to find the south side of town abandoned. No signs of struggle were found. They were just gone. My sister decided to take their chances and hit the road. They went north, leaving me behind when I admitted that I was too afraid of leaving. They didn't come back. This morning, I woke up to find everyone else gone. My neighbors, their pets, everyone. The sun's setting. Maybe it's setting on me tonight. Maybe everything. I've stopped looking out the windows. There's no one coming. But I stay behind my desk in the motel lobby in case someone does show up. And I ask myself why. Am I still a motel clerk if there's no one to check in? Am I a son anymore if my dad's gone for good? Am I still a brother if my sister never comes back? Who am I if I'm no one to anyone? And for how much longer? My father is the scariest man I've ever known. And when armed with a bottle of beer, he reaches nightmare levels. Just a crackle of his belt or the rise of his voice is enough to make me shake like a leaf. One night, when I struggled to get comfortable in bed from the bruises and sounds of my mom's crying, I hatched an ingenious idea to stop the pain and suffering. Scared dad. Clearly, he just didn't know how his actions made us feel, but if I scared him like he scared us, maybe he would change his ways. I tried anything I could think of to produce some fright and scare dad straight. I would hide and jump out at him, but he didn't even flinch. I placed a toy snake in his toilet, but that only resulted in a beating for me. Finally, I thought of destroying his alcohol. I know that people become scared when they lose something they love. So one by one, I poured my dad's bottles down the drain and eagerly awaited his reaction. I knew this would be it. This would be the thing to scare him. That night, I remember my father discovering the empty bottles and becoming angrier than I had ever seen him. I still remember him wrecking the house. I remember him storming into my room. I remember his hands around my neck and me seeing black. Luckily, my plan and hard work that night paid off though. Today my father lives in a constant state of fear. I'm always watching him. How timid and nervous he is all the time. Whenever I pay him a visit, his complexion turns pasty white. His body shivers like I used to and he breaks out into a cold sweat. I scared my father so good, you would think that he saw a ghost. I couldn't believe it when I first discovered the online chats, my little girl talking with a random man on the internet. I felt my soul leave my body. I thought I raised her better, but in hindsight, I guess I should have been more observant. She's grown distant since the divorce and maybe this is her way of receiving validation. I knew I had to do something drastic before this escalated and something despicable happened to my baby. I knew I couldn't confront her head on with this discovery 
She's a teenager, and surely a confrontation would just lead her to keeping more secrets and dissolving trust over my snooping. I had a plan to scare her straight and show her the danger involved with talking to strangers online. I cut a deal with an employee at my company to create an account and contact my daughter on one of those online forums. Once they hit it off, he would pick her up and bring her to one of our warehouses. He would build up the suspense as a cliche, older creep, really put the fear of God in her. Then I would swoop in and point out how the consequences of her reckless actions could be deadly. The plan was executed to perfection, and after a few days my daughter agreed to meet up. She thought she was stealthy and snuck out at night to meet this stranger. I waited a few minutes and proceeded to make my way towards the warehouse. When I arrived, I saw my daughter exiting the building. She was pale as a ghost and wiping away tears. I had my grin as I got out of the car and approached her. Dad, she yelped as she ran towards me full speed. I'm sorry, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I actually did something like this. Can you please not tell anyone about this? I felt a sense of beaming pride. My little girl had learned a valuable lesson and in this moment, our relationship felt restored. Baby girl, all I care about is your safety. Promise me you'll never do anything like this again and we can pretend it never happened. She shot me a smile and nodded. I started to move towards the car when she stopped me. You're the best dad a girl could ask for, but we can't leave yet, daddy. You have to help me hide the body. A few nights ago, I was woken up by the sound of my father ordering someone to put their hands up. I'd left my window open that night to let the cool air in and I could hear him loud and clear. I hopped out of bed and was looking out my window. Someone had been in our barn and my dad caught them red-handed. In fact, when I ran outside after grabbing a flashlight and my pistol, both of the man's hands were red, his face too, fresh blood, but none of it his. What the hell are you guys doing in there? My father said, aiming his shotgun right at the man's face. No, not man. Boy. He looked like he had barely hit puberty. The boy's eyes started welling up. I, I, please don't fucking shoot me. Jesus Christ. My parents have money. I'm sure they'll pay you and you can forget all about this. God, I'm so sorry. Please. My dad looked back and we shared a knowing glance. So you're from that prep school. Okay. You would rather not feel what a face of birdshot feels like. I hear you. What were you just doing in my goddamn barn? Oh my god, I'm fucking sorry. The boy fell to his knees. It was a hazing thing, I swear. My dad told me that I had to join the secret club in school, and they said I needed to prove myself. By doing what? I asked. Something bad, he admitted. They told me to kill something. I swear it was quick. I just used the blood to make it look bad, so they would let me in. Who'd you kill? My dad asked, taking a step towards the boy, for emphasis. One of your horses. I promise I'll pay you for it. I'm good for it, really. I didn't know whether I bought it until I saw the boy had pissed his pants. Dad, this is way over our heads. Secret clubs for rich psychos? I think we should just take the money before he shits himself, too. He looks back, considering it for a moment. Fine. Double what the horse is worth. Pain and suffering and all that. Deal. The boy left his student ID behind his collateral and promised to return the next evening with the money. He never showed. 
The next night, though, we found him in the barn again. His throat was slit, a deep cut nearly halfway around his neck. The knife was left next to the body, now surrounded by the blood that drained out of him. The boy was all tied up, zip ties keeping his hands behind his back and his ankles together. He would have been helpless when they stuck the needle through his lips over and over again, sewing them shut. I didn't need the note they stapled to his chest to understand. The message was loud and clear before I even read the paper. Forget about us. After spending yet another day at home with nothing to do, I went to bed early. The uneasy rest was interrupted by a shattering of glass. The electronic awareness of fear pulled me out of bed before I was even sure of what I heard. I ran softly to my bedroom door, making sure it was still locked, and I pressed my ear against it. From the direction of the living room, I heard crunching of glass. Someone had broken one of my windows and now was walking on the shards. Someone was in my house. I returned to my bed, trying in vain to stop myself from panicking. I immediately began to call 911, holding up the phone with one hand, while the other one searched my nightstand for something to defend myself with. I picked up my lamp, nearly dropping it as the cord tensed, and used my foot to pull the plug from the wall. The automated system warned me that there was a high volume of calls, and asked me to stay on the line if there was an emergency. I wondered, for the first time, what the home invader's intentions were. Did they want to hurt me? Were they out to steal my valuables? Did they want to raid my toilet paper supply? Nothing was off the table. People have been crazy lately. I stayed away from the door, putting safety above curiosity that told me to try hearing what they were up to again. After a minute of terrified silence, the emergency operator finally took my call. I whispered the details to them including my name and address, and they told me that help was on the way before hanging up. After I set the phone down, I heard the handle of my bedroom door jiggle. Open the door. A man's gruff voice called out. We know you're in there. I called the police, assholes. I yelled back, so you better get the fuck out of here. The man laughed lightly. Careful, he said simply. I don't want to make a mess, but if you force my hand... Open the door. Fuck you, I yelled back. I waited for an answer and got nothing. The piercing silence rang in my ears and I wondered if he had actually given up that easily. Then, almost without a sound, the handle began jiggling again. After a few clicks and scrapes, the door unlocked and slowly began to open. I watched in horror as it swung into the room revealing nothing but the shadow beyond the new open doorway. From the darkness, I heard the gruff voice simply say, You're not Anthony. Who, my neighbor? After more silence, the voice responded, This is 4059, right? 4061, I corrected, holding my lamp tightly. The voice chuckled softly, My bad, wrong place. I'll be on my way. And after a moment of silence, he said, and hey, stay inside, alright? It's not safe out there. After an hour or so of the usual questions, I was caught off guard. Why don't you say what you've been really thinking? 
Trying to hide my surprise, I admired Mr. Thomas' candor and keen sense of observation. It was true. I didn't give a damn about this interview. I was going to be leaving the network shortly after anyways for a better job. It was even my 40th birthday. I had two mortgages and canceled dinner plans. Instead, I was spending the night interviewing a serial killer. Maybe that's your dream, but I could tell you with the utmost certainty it wasn't mine. What do you mean, Mr. Tomlin? A twinkle came and went from his eyes. I mean, why don't you stop wasting both of our time and ask the important question? I've only got a few hours left to live, you know. I met his gaze. For a moment, he struck me as a taller, thinner version of Hannibal Lecter. Was I afraid to ask? Sure, as afraid as anyone can be when confronted with such evil. But there's a very thick plate of glass between us and two strong enough guards stationed on opposite corners of the room. Still, I was tired of pretending. He was right about that, at least. Okay, you win. I motioned to the cameraman to take a break outside the room. I pulled my chair closer, his face maybe four feet away from mine at this point. And even though there was a barrier between us, we were able to hear each other perfectly. Making no attempt to play nice anymore. I put my cards on the table, so to speak. So what kind of sick fuck eats people anyway? I paused for a moment before continuing. I mean, that's what you wanted me to ask, right? You happy now? Yes. Mr. Thomas said. Yes, I am happy now. He grinned wildly. I saw that his teeth were perfect white that resembled the purest ivory. They looked sharper than they should be. Or was that my imagination? Well, since you asked, I'd be glad to answer. It's not exactly something you could see yourself doing, is it, Mark? Eating people? No. Can't say there's any situation where I'd find myself eating a guy. What about a girl? He asked quickly, making no attempt to hold in his laughter. Before I could express my disgust with him, he continued, I'm going to share a little secret with you, Marky boy. Oh yeah? I said sarcastically, humoring him by leaning in closer. Yeah. He said more seriously. What if I told you that before this interview is over, that you're going to develop the taste just like I did? Did you just say the taste? And then Mr. Tomlin winked a single time and my vision went black. In fact, everything went black. When I finally came to, I ran to the door. My eyes were still mostly failing, and I could only make out slivers of shadows around me. I slammed my hands against the steel frame. Let me out! I screamed, feeling more terrified than I had ever remembered, but not completely sure why. At that moment, the door did indeed open, and my vision began to return enough to see the horrified look on my cameraman's face as he spoke. Jesus Christ, Mark. What the hell happened? His voice stopped as he looked from my eyes down to my shirt and hands. And as chance would have it, that's when my vision returned fully. My chest, arms, and hands were almost completely covered in blood. Oh my god! I said aloud as the world started to spin faster and faster around me. The two guards' bodies were stacked, one on top of the other, directly in front of the glass where I had spoke to Mr. Tomlin. The old man was standing perfectly still, never having escaped from his side of the room. 
a wide grin frozen over his face that stretched ear to ear. Mr. Tomlin never said a word. Instead, only made one small act. He sat back down in his chair, cocked his head to the side, and nodded. I blacked out completely then, but my insanity continued even into the darkness. I swear I could hear him whispering to me in my dreams. That was almost two years ago now. I'm approaching the eve of my 42nd birthday. Things are a bit different, you could say. Instead of mortgages and dinner plans to worry about, I don't have much stress about that anymore. In fact, I spend most of my time reading. They allow me a small garden to tend to, the one condition of my plea deal. Exceptions aren't usually made for people such as myself, so I guess I should consider myself lucky. Life is simpler now. Some nights, I find myself sitting in silence, thinking of Mr. Tomlin. Long dead by now, but still somehow, all the more alive in the darkness of my mind. But that's not what you really want to know, is it? You want to know if I still have the taste. Well, due to the circumstances of my conviction, while unlikely, it's still possible that I'll be brought before a parole board at some point. Maybe even get out of this place one day. I guess you'll just have to keep wondering. So, this happened when I was a kid. Me and a few friends were playing around with a Ouija board when my entitled cousin walks in. He was nine years old and kind of a brat says his mom, entitled aunt, let him do anything he wants. So when he sees us playing with a Ouija board, he asks to play. We tell him no since he's too young and we're in the middle of talking with a spirit. But he was welcome to watch. He tells me that he's going to get his mom. This is when the nightmare begins. Entitled aunt stomps in yells at us for telling her son that he can't play. Then she grabs the board and just snaps it in half. It was a pretty cheap Ouija board, so it didn't take much effort. Then she stomps on the pointer. She leaves in a huff and we just stare at the broken Ouija board. So about a month later, a title aunt comes to visit and she's not looking too well. She looks pale, has bags under her eyes, and seems to jump at every little sound. I also heard that my cousin is in the hospital since he fell down the stairs. So my mom and entitled aunt were pretty close. My mom's nice, so she puts up with my aunt's bitchiness since my aunt's ex-husband was an abusive asshole. He died while drunk driving, so she got his life insurance money. Okay, back to my aunt. She tells my mom how the past month has been terrible for her. She's been hearing weird noises at night. And also, my cousin claims to have an imaginary friend. The thing is that my cousin's imaginary friend is named Steve, which happens to be the same spirit we were talking to the night my aunt broke the Ouija board. So weird stuff happens, like the vase breaking, or plates breaking, glass breaking, or even the drapes catching on fire. My cousin was in his room when all this happened, and he said Steve did it. Well, my aunt did not believe my cousin, so she grounds him. He did not like this, and all of a sudden, she felt him scratch her arm. Over the next few days, more scratches appeared on her arms, and she showed it to my mom. Also one time, she swore that she saw a shadow man standing in the mirror, walking by the corner of her eye. She was almost at her breaking point. I almost wanted to say something, that she brought this on herself breaking the Ouija board, but I didn't. I don't know. I feel sorry for her, but she always uses her past abuse as an excuse to act entitled, and 
she should really consider her actions. So I heard from my mom that my aunt called her a few times and my mom told me that she thinks that someone is in her house at night. She even once called the police when she believed someone had broken in, but the cops never found anyone. She did this so many times and each time there were no signs of forced entry. So it came to a point where her calls were just ignored. My cousin's still in the hospital though. Anyway, my aunt called us to stay with her since she didn't want to be home alone. Of course, my mom is nice. This is her sister after all. So me, my mom and dad come to stay with her over the weekend when we were free. Of course, she demands that we stay for much longer. Now, my school is a bit far from where my aunt lives and my mom and dad don't work anywhere near her house. So it would take a long time to get where we wanted to be. But she keeps insisting that we stay since we are family. Okay, so what happens is that while we're staying, nothing weird happens. It was all normal. But then when we were about to leave, she yells at us to stay. Then we heard a loud crash from the kitchen. There were broken plates everywhere. My aunt loses her mind, and we bolt right out of there. So when it's time for my cousin to come back home, CPS actually comes to investigate to see if it's safe for him to stay with an unstable person. Well... She was not helping out her case when she keeps seeing dark figures out of the corner of her eyes and claims that she sees someone in the mirror or the reflection on the window or TV. One time, when she came home from grocery shopping, she thought she saw my cousin in the window. It was noon on a school day, so she yells at him and he vanishes. She later learns that her son never left school. CPS decides to take my cousin away from her and insists that she gets treatment for her mental issues, but she insists that she's not crazy. I'm beginning to wonder more and more if I should have spoke up at this moment. Update. My aunt ended up losing her kid and got locked up in a mental hospital. Even after that, she still acts entitled. She tries to demand better meds and better food when she's being treated for mental illness. She's only been broken, harassed by a poltergeist that followed her home I'm not really sure if Steve is a mere ghost. He may just be a demon who's behaving like a poltergeist. But if you ask me, I think he's gone too far. My mom and I decide to go visit her at the hospital. She's lost weight, her skin is pale, and she has very big bags under her eyes. As soon as she sees us, she demands to see her child. Now. Right now. My cousin is living with a good foster family. They would probably raise him to act better and not demand anything. He has learned that he can't have everything he wants and that people can say no to him, something his mother never taught him. He also doesn't have his mother to cry to if someone doesn't give him what he wants. Anyways, we tell her that my cousin is not with us and I can see that she's mad. But we can see the orderlies and she knows that she would be subdued if she starts to act up. So I decided to tell her everything and she said that she would support me in telling my aunt as soon as I told her that the haunting was caused by her breaking my Ouija board, she just screams and flips the table. She screams abuse, calling me a witch, a devil worshipper, a bastard, and all sorts of terrible names. She picks up the chair to beat us, and the orderlies rush in. They grab her, pin her arms behind her back, and she struggles, screaming and foaming at the mouth. She blames me for what happened to her. I was going to tell her I could recommend someone to bless the house and drive the evil spirit away. 
But at that time, my mom and I watch her as she's dragged away. Looks like there's no helping her. I really wanted to help her get rid of the entity that was haunting her, but it looks like she's not willing to listen to me. All she wants to do is throw blame and not even consider a solution. Well, it's her loss. I tried. A month later, I heard that she died at the hospital. She had choked to death in her own room. They found a marble in her throat. I'm not sure if she did it to herself or if Steve decided to finish the job, but she's gone now. We go to her funeral and I can feel a chill, like she's still around and glaring at me, blaming me for her death. I guess I could see if I can contact her on my new Ouija board. Hopefully, I can send her back and maybe help her pass on. Has anyone ever heard a knock on their window? I mean, sure, most of you probably would say yes. It inevitably happens for some reason or another. Perhaps a tree limb hitting it in a storm, or an animal accidentally flying into it, or just weird neighborhood children playing pranks on you. My story is more chilling than that. I honestly can't find the best way to put these into words, but I'll do my best. I don't see names as an important thing, not for something like this. It's better no one tries to contact me or find out who exactly I am. All you need to know is that I am now 30 years old. I can tell you where I live or did live when it all started. It was in a rural countryside with forests surrounding our old wooden house. I lived with my grandparents at the time who raised me up until I was 15. They're pretty much my entire world and always will be. My parents died when I was very young, and I was never told the full story. They always said they didn't want to talk about it. I figured it was hard for them to replay the passing of their son and daughter-in-law. It was, from what I heard from another relative, a car crash that happened two months after my birth. When my grandparents learned of this, they were quick to adopt me as their own, to which I'm thankful for. One night, about a week after turning 15, I was laying in bed half asleep. That's when I heard a subtle knock on my bedroom window. I'm a very seclusive person by nature, and I don't know why. I've always had my door shut and locked and my window tightly locked down with thick blinds covering it from the inside. The knock did startle me at first. Then I remember a tree limb that typically dangles close to my window. I figured it was simply getting blown by the wind and had reached far enough to scrape the window. I thought nothing much of it that night and slept pretty well. The next morning, my grandparents called me down for breakfast. I rushed down to some eggs, a piece of toast, grape jelly, and a piece of chocolate fudge, one of my favorite treats. I never mentioned the knocks to my grandparents. After finishing my breakfast, I did my normal routine. I cleaned up, got on the bus, went to school, came home, played games, and then got back into bed. The norm for most kids, I'm certain. The next night, same thing, knocks. This time, more than once and a bit louder. This admittedly freaked me out. Two nights in a row? The thing about this night is there was no wind outside, not the slightest whiff. 
For several months, the same thing happened almost every night. At this point, it did have me slightly on edge, as it really isn't a normal phenomenon. After that night, nothing further happened for at least four days. On the fourth night, things took a sudden turn for the horrific. I once again heard the knocks at my window. But this time, it wasn't just knocks. I heard something literally clawing at the window. Almost as if it was trying to break inside. This caused me to panic and duck under the covers. But I soon realized that was stupid. If this thing gets in the house, it will most certainly notice the figure under the covers. I remember my bed is rather tall and heavy and has thick sheets that dangle all the way down the side to the floor. I quietly and quickly made my way under the bed and hid. I stayed down there for what felt like minutes on end, waiting for something to happen. Nothing did. I heard nothing but a very subtle creaking of the house. Finally, something broke the silence. The window in my room broke with a loud shattering sound, glass spraying all over my bed. I very nearly screamed at the sudden shock, but I covered my mouth before anything could escape. Silence once again. Moments later, I hear the thud of a foot slam onto my wood floor. And then I heard something mumbling. I couldn't tell what was being said, but I could have sworn that it was saying my name over and over and over. At this point, it was literally a repeating record. But as it vanished down the hallway, I heard something else. Another thud in my room as the same thing happened again. Only this time, the voice was far deeper. It sounded very masculine to the last one. It paid my bed no mind as I scattered out of the room. I stayed under my bed all night, too afraid to come out. By the time morning came around, the house was silent as a field on a moonless night. I slowly crept out from under my bed and stood up, looking at my window and the damage. It was alarming, but not as alarming as the massive human-shaped footprints. I didn't know how to respond. My mouth hung open in pure horror as I saw the scale of them and the fact that they had claws on them too. Judging by the scale of the footprints, the height of the creatures would have to be at least 10 feet. I slowly made my way out of the room, following the tracks. I paused for a second and looked up. The trail entered my grandparents' room. My heart froze with a deep dread. I forced myself to continue forward and made it into the doorway. What I saw next is stabbed into my memories even to this day, 15 years later. My grandparents' heads were severed, clean off their necks, and placed on the bed. Their mouths hung wide and their eyes wider in pure horror as blood was piled on the beds from them bleeding out. Their bodies were nowhere to be found. I screamed at the top of my lungs and bolted down the stairs. I ran a full mile to the nearest neighbor's house and banged on the door as hard and fast as I could, bawling my eyes out in the process. Angela, our neighborhood chicken raiser, opened the door and I fell into her arms, sobbing like an eight-year-old to which she just held me in confusion, but also trying to comfort me. Calm down, sweetie. Tell Angela what happened. She said hushed, trying to calm me down. He- heads. I stuttered, screaming out, pointing to my house. She comforted me and got us both into her car and drove back to my house. I begged her to just drive away and not go in there. 
but she refused to listen. She ran inside, and not long after I heard a scream from her too. She rushed back out and called the police, explaining over the phone what she saw. Within three minutes, four police cars and a SWAT team were at her house. I remember them trying to question, but I couldn't speak for a while to save my life. I kept bawling my eyes out in Angela's arms. The cops understandably tried to keep me calm as the SWAT team tore apart the house. After a while, I told them what happened. One of the SWAT members looked at me and said, you need to come with us now. I was literally pulled by my arm by the same SWAT member and Angela screaming, trying to stop them from taking me as I reached out to her crying. I was sedated as soon as I got into the SWAT car, but before I was, I heard gunshots and someone dying. I woke up several days later in a military institution, surrounded by armed troops and an older, high-ranking officer. What's your name, son? She said. To which I responded, why? To which she looked at me square in the eyes and told me, you're being hunted by something and we have you safely secured in our installation. No, I screamed. I want to go home. To which she spoke, calming me down instantly somehow. Son, your grandparents are dead and no one remains in your old neighborhood to protect you. You're under my protection now. I promise you nothing's going to happen to you. From that day forward, I lived a sheltered, spoiled life. For another five years, I almost completely forgot about what happened. I was now 20 years old. During this time, I was taught to fight and given the rights to bear arms at any time for my protection. It was now December 3rd and I had turned in after a long day's work. My eyes shot wide open and I slowly looked down towards the window which was covered from the inside in the house made entirely of metal and concrete. I quickly got up, grabbed my gun, and ran to my adoptive mother's room to find the window broken and yet another bloody head on the bed, just like five years ago. I didn't scream this time, but I decided to do something more drastic. I hid all the evidence that she had even died, changed my name and alias, moved away and completely went off the radar. I adopted a new life, everyone believing I was a secret agent or something. On the side, I did some research and looked into the death of my own parents. I found a lead that pointed it to not being a car crash, but something far sinister. They went missing in the woods with no trace and were never seen again while on a camping trip 30 miles from my grandparents' house. This made my blood run cold. I looked deeper into the classified files. Things like a skinwalker were mentioned numerous times, and things got so dark about them that I eventually stopped looking. I knew if I kept it up, the government would learn of me intruding on high-classified documents. I'm now 30 years old. I have a wife, three kids, and live in another country. I speak another language now, entirely. And we have lived good for the last few years now, but something happened last night that gives me a pause. The ever-so-tender taps on my bedroom window. Help her, Robert, the soft voice whispered. Looking down, it's hard to argue. Stage 4 cancer. 
When Miss Ruth had been asked about her pain level earlier this morning, she replied with no hesitation, 10 out of 10. I had marked it down in the notes and felt my fair share of sadness for this old woman. You know what to do, my sister had said, her glowing eyes staring into mine. No one could see my sister anymore since her death, except for me. It's funny, when my sister was alive, we weren't that close. But now, she was with me nearly every second. Now she was always there to guide me and help me through the harder choices in life. Okay, Sarah, I replied, filling the syringe as far as it would go. If you work in healthcare, you know that upon each shift, the narcotics are measured by the oncoming nurse, but there are ways around that. As Miss Ruth's breathing slowed, I filled up the morphine with tap water and checked its levels before the next shift would. No change. I knelt down by the old woman and held her hand. Was I sorry for my part in this? Absolutely not. She was enduring more pain than anyone should have to. And before you judge me, I want to ask you this. Would you let your dog wither away and die from stage 4 cancer? Or would you take him to the vet and help him move on to the next life? Why should Miss Ruth be any different? Go to the light, I whispered in her ear. And she did. Her heart slowly stopping and a warm smile falling over her face. My only regret was that her family wasn't there when she had passed. But it wasn't worth the risk. People don't trust nurses and doctors like they used to. And there is more than a small chance that one of her family members might notice her increased dosage. This is how it had to be. And this is how it always had been. That night I took out my journal, strewn under my bed and withdrew a small knife that was cradled inside it. I cut a small mark on the inside of my arm and used the fresh blood as ink to write a single mark on the back page of the leather. One. This made 65. Wow, was it really that many? Hey Sarah, I shouted to the adjoining room. Yes brother? She called back. Would you believe we're at 65 already? I replied, even louder than before. I couldn't help it. I was so damn proud of what we had achieved together. All these souls that had been given reprieve from pain and journeyed towards the light. I'm proud of you, Robert, she whispered. Now get some rest. My smile grew wider. I knew it wasn't good to be dependent on others for your feelings, but the thought of my family being proud of me filled my heart with joy. Sarah was the last one I had left, and even though she was a ghost or something... It felt like our relationship was more alive than it had ever been. Still, life is never without its challenges. Three days later, a new patient was brought in under my care. Mr. Davis was a retired engineer and had recently been diagnosed with a fast-acting form of pancreatic cancer. Get some rest, I whispered, filling the syringe up with morphine like I had done so many times earlier. But this time didn't go as planned. Mr. Davis gripped my wrist tightly and pulled my eyes in front of his. I don't want any medicine, he said empathetically, and I could tell he meant every word. Still, I had a job to do. Mr. Davis, it's just to dull the pain, I said, freeing my wrist from him and pushing the needle towards him. I don't want the fucking medicine, he continued, his voice far too loud now to provide the concealed environment I needed. Okay, okay, sir. I replied, turning my back and checking the morphine level on the bottle. 
He gave me an angry, hazy look and drifted off to sleep. That night, when I went back home, I prayed that she wouldn't find out. God, please don't let her hurt me, I whispered. My hands locked together as I sat on my knees and looked over at a crucifix painting my mother had assisted I receive after her death. When I finished my prayers, I did something I hadn't done since we were children. I locked the door. It wasn't more than five minutes later when my sister's voice could be heard in the outside hallway and the scratching started. God, why were her nails so long now? Or do they continue to grow after you're dead? I always forgot. You didn't do God's work today, did you, Robert? I pretended to be asleep. I pretended that I didn't hear her, but it never worked. Robert. The dead voice screamed. The old house's very foundations shaking violently with her anger. I couldn't, okay? I called back. He told me he didn't want any. And with that, the steady scratching at the door increased. It's only interruptions being the even worse slams against the old oak frame she desperately tried to get inside. I tried not to think about the punishment that awaited if she did. Horror filled me now as I could hear the hinges beginning to creak and bend further with each heavy jolt against it. Jumping out of bed, I braced my back against it. Please, Sarah. I cried out gently, tears beginning to fill my eyes now. Please don't hurt me. I called through the door, and after a moment, the slamming did stop. A steady scratching took its place that was somehow more gentle than before. Robert, I just want what's best. You understand that, don't you? I tried to hide my terror as I peeked through the small gap under the door. Her dead eyes were waiting for me. They glowed like embers as I stared back. I know you do, sister. A few weeks ago, I was reading some articles about the dark web. I found it intriguing, and the thought of the unknown drew me in. The fact that there's so much hidden content in the dark web made me want to attempt to go on it, so I did. I found a guide of how to access this part of the internet, and I followed every step, although there were only a few. Download Tor, check. Download a VPN, check. Find.onion links. Check. I thought, was this really all there was to it? Just that easy? I gained access to the deeper parts of the web through the browser Tor. It was boring at first because there wasn't too much to look at. Just a blank page. I knew it wasn't like the regular web. I had to find links to type in. I found a wiki page full of .onion links before I got started so I looked through to find something interesting. I wasn't on the dark web to buy anything or do anything illegal. I just wanted to look. My curiosity got the better of me. The links didn't have descriptions on what they were about, so I had to take my chances with whichever one I typed in. I copied and pasted the link that seemed a bit creepy, mainly because I was alone and wanted to scare myself while I waited for my girlfriend to come home. I hit enter and the page loaded. It was a pitch black page with small white text written on the left bottom corner. It was so tiny I couldn't even read it. The text then started to slowly get bigger, finally enough to where I could read it. Be careful what you click on, it wrote. Okay, weird I thought. I clicked out of the link and moved down the list of links. 
I copy and pasted another. The page loaded up. It was a black and red page with a text saying, enter name. It looked like it was a computer game. Alexa, I typed in the box. Another text box showed up, this time saying, last name too. Okay, I know what you think. You must be stupid to give your full name on the dark web. Yes, I know. And yes, I was. That's where it all went wrong. More, I typed into the computer. Inside, I felt a bit nervous. I was wondering why I even gave my real name. Like, who does that? I could have entered a fake name. It looked like a harmless game. What could happen? Some animation started after I hit enter. It was a man chasing a woman around in the house with a knife. A body of text said, Your objective is not to get killed, Alexa. It can happen in a matter of seconds. You cannot hide from us. We will always be watching. I hated how those words sounded like they were directed at me. It was a little nerve-wracking, especially because after those words, I saw my name being typed in over the woman running from the knife, let alone my name being on the screen. I wasn't even able to control anything in the game. It was just a video I was watching and it seemed to replay every time the woman was killed. As the video played, the woman started to look more like me. It was crazy. I was sitting there watching the animated version of myself being murdered over and over again. The last replay of the video had the woman's legs cut off and bleeding out on the floor. And the killer left. Strange enough, more words appeared on the screen. We're almost to you, Alexa. We can't wait to meet you. My heart began to race. What the hell is that about? I thought. It's nothing. I'm perfectly fine. I tried to close the page and it kept on giving me an error message. I tried three more times. All said the same thing. Error. Cannot exit. I reset my computer hoping that would take care of everything. I didn't pick my computer back up to check. I felt too creeped out. I guess that's what I wanted, right? My girlfriend was supposed to come home soon, so I went downstairs to the kitchen to get dinner started. Pour myself a glass of wine to calm myself after watching myself die repeatedly. I'm never going back on the dark web again. That freaked me out way too much. And besides, the VPN I downloaded seemed a bit sketchy. I didn't have to pay for it and it kept cutting in and out, leaving minutes at a time unsecured. I hear a door open. Thinking it was my girlfriend, I got excited. It's been a long day and I wanted to share what happened with her. I heard footsteps. I called out, Honey, I'm in the kitchen. I didn't hear her voice. Normally she announces when she's home. I started to get a bit worried and walked towards the front door. It was wide open with no one there. I felt the pit of anxiety in my stomach. I ran back to the kitchen in an attempt to grab a weapon to protect myself. I was looking for the butcher knife in my knife block with little to no avail. That was the only knife missing. I heard footsteps again so I grabbed one of the knives and booked it upstairs. I went into my bedroom, turned the lights off and locked the door. We're always watching you, Alexa Moore. What a naive thing to do, entering your full name onto the dark web, unprotected? We found you in a matter of seconds. You know how quickly and easily it was to find your location? Remember the game you played? That's going to quickly be your reality. I heard it in a deep voice. My heart dropped. 
I was afraid of what was going to happen next. The next thing I knew, I was knocked out cold on the floor. I woke up maybe 45 minutes later due to excruciating pain. Blood everywhere, pain, and more pain. My vision was blurry from tears. I looked down and saw my legs torn from my body. All I could think about besides the pain was my girlfriend. Where was she? Is she alive? I couldn't see or hear anyone. I was hoping whoever did this was gone. They must have taken my limbs because I didn't see them on the floor. I started to hear the sound of faint sirens getting louder as they came closer. A few minutes later, a rush of paramedics and police came into my room. I was lifted onto a gurney and carried downstairs. That is where I saw my girlfriend on the floor, bleeding out. Before I was taken outside into the ambulance, I saw them close her eyes. I knew what that meant. My heart broke even more inside. Once I was in the ambulance, everything went black. I was scrolling through Craigslist at work when I first saw the ad. Very rare doll, price negotiable. The picture was grainy and poorly taken, but I figured that that was a plus. Sometimes the best deals come from people that didn't know the value of what they had. Maybe, no, probably I was greedy, and perhaps the events of the following days were karma. A quick background. I collect antique items, anything ranging from sports cards and figurines to old mirrors and radios and whatever else you can imagine. I never bought a doll before, nor had I ever had the urge to. This was different, though I could only make a faint outline of the doll's wooden face. I knew I had to have it. I messaged them immediately. Hello, my name is Steven. I'd like to purchase the doll if we can agree on a fair price. Not 30 seconds later, I saw a reply in my inbox. Hello Steven, $5 will do. $5? Seriously? I grinned as I thought of what a steal this was. You have a deal. How would you like me to pay? No more than 30 seconds later. I'm leaving after today so I can drop the item off during my travels. Now I know I shouldn't have given someone off of Craigslist my address. That's in the rules, right? But I couldn't pass up the great opportunity. Something told me that this doll was worth serious money. I mean $5 cash and the owner was delivering it? I replied back immediately, giving them my address and clicking send. I never heard from the owner again. Laying down that night, I continued to check my email on and off until falling asleep. Still no reply. It was around 1am, the doorbell rang, and the feeling that I may have made a mistake first hit me, though I didn't yet know how serious of a mistake it would be. I walked over groggily through my kitchen, flicked the outdoor light on, and looked through the peephole. Nothing. No one there. Well, that's not exactly true. There was something sitting on the front porch. Opening the door with a mix of confusion and trepidation, I took a step forward and bent down. Yes, sure enough it was, though it didn't look exactly like the picture, and the feeling I got while staring down at it wasn't excitement, it was fear. No, it was worse. As I pick up the doll to take it inside, a quote from C.S. Lewis hit me like a sack of bricks. You have to understand, I'm not Christian, nor do I have a deep belief in God or the supernatural at this point. That made it even more surprising when these words filled my mind. 
Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and probably feel fear. But if I told you that there was a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel, indeed, what is often called as fear, but a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to them. But of the mere fact that there is a ghost, it is uncanny rather than dangerous, and a special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. C.S. Lewis Yes, dread is what I felt. Dread is exactly what I felt. I took one last look around the front yard for any signs of the previous owner, and then walked back inside and closed the door behind me. Sitting down in the kitchen, I set the doll in the center of the table to get a better look. It seemed to be carved completely out of wood. Although the boy's face had some cracks and imperfections from age, they were only a surface level. The thing's eyes were a deep piercing blue, and I'm ashamed to admit that I found myself examining it for any signs of life. Nothing. They were still. Yet they stared back at me nonetheless. A chill went through me. I wanted to resell this thing fast. I went back to my bedroom and shut the door behind me. I locked it for once, and I'm glad I did. As soon as I felt the first tinge of sleepiness hit me, I heard them. Footsteps. Quick, light footsteps along the hallway floor. Knock, knock. Was this really happening? The next time was louder. Knock, knock. Yes, this wasn't a dream. I grabbed the phone and dialed 911. And yes, I know what you're thinking. A grown man calling 911 over a doll scrambling through his home and knocking on his bedroom door. I'll answer that in one word for you. Yes. 911, what's your merch? Someone has broken in my home. I need help. Almost instantly, a soft patter of footsteps could be heard going back along the hallway and into the kitchen. I felt a small amount of relief, yet I still pushed the bedroom dresser directly in front of the door. I wasn't taking any chances. When the police arrived, I pushed the dresser aside, took a deep breath, and sprinted past the kitchen towards the front door. I already knew what I would tell them. I'm not sure if they're still here, but would you mind looking through the house? They nodded, telling me to go outside and wait while they searched my home. I saw no sign of them for 10 minutes until the older man walked out. All clear. We checked every room and every closet. We talked for a short time and I made up a report for them on the fly. Obviously I couldn't tell them about the doll. I came up with a quick plan. Would you guys mind staying outside for 10 minutes just in case whoever it was comes back? Yeah, no problem. We'll hang around for a few. Thank you. I nodded. I knew what had to be done and at least I had some backup in case things went bad. Walking back inside, I found the wooden doll sitting precariously on the edge of the kitchen table, a foot or so from where I had left it. It hadn't changed positions drastically, but it certainly had moved. And its blue eyes seemed to say, How could it have been me? I'm not alive. I'm just wood and glass and... I picked it up without a second thought. There would be no reselling it. I carried it into my living room, set it in the fireplace, and poured a dangerous amount of lighter fluid on the doll as well as the surrounding wood. Boom. The first match set the thing ablaze. Pressing my hand against the metal grating, I half expected it to begin screaming and pushing its way out towards me. This time it wouldn't be knocking at my door. It would kill me. But that never happened. Instead, the thing just burned. The blue eyes were staring into mine, unblinking, angry, very angry. There was one more thing I am certain I didn't imagine. Right after the police left, I walked back to the fireplace and continued watching it burn. I jumped backwards in horror as the thing winked at me. 
I stayed up all night that evening, adding logs and lighter fluid to the fire and watching until there was just a pile of ashes. Well, that's not exactly true. At dawn the next morning, there were only two things that remained in the fire. Ashes and two glass eyes of blue sitting atop. They seemed to look back at me as if to say, Do you really think it would be that easy? I swallowed, somehow knowing it wasn't over. Four hours later, I had buried its remains under three feet of dirt within a locked security box in my backyard. Again, I'm not religious, but something told me to set a cross in it as well. Not having one, I fashioned one myself out of two sticks and some string. I set it directly on top of the pile of ashes. It's been some time since then, and while the doll has never come back to visit me, I can't help but feel like it isn't over. Maybe it's just waiting till I forget, or until I start to believe that it's just all in my imagination. Strangely enough, it wouldn't be my last experience with a haunted doll. Are any of you computer geeks? I certainly am. So much that I have become adept at computer coding and other sort of things over the years. You're probably wondering who I am exactly, so I'll cut to the chase. I am a 43 year old computer tech who works off hire. My name is Alfred and I live in a fairly small town. I won't tell you the name of the place to protect you. I'll be honest. For the vast majority of my computer life, I had never once heard of the dark web. I mean, sure, I've heard bits and pieces about it here and there. Such as kids jokingly saying, Oh, have you been on the dark web yet? It's lit, bro. Personally, I always saw the purpose of the dark web as a place that would potentially have horror stories on it. You know, like typical campfire stories you hear, told while camping with your friends, or even Boy Scout gatherings. What got me to look into it was when a fellow technician, a friend in fact, told me something interesting on the way back home. Al, buddy, I just got off the deep web. It's interesting to say the least. Really now? Did those annoying teens on the street get you into it? I said with a tasteful chuckle. But to my surprise, he didn't say anything back. His face was pale, and he simply turned away and walked off in a hurry. I paused, confused at this point. Had I said something to upset him? Did he just remember his wife had something important scheduled? He's usually forgetful to those things, but it was different this time. I could feel a mix of emotions radiating off of him, like a pulsating heartbeat as he vanished on a turn a few blocks down the street. This prompted me to think for a moment, before sadly continuing on to my house. While I walked, I felt a wave of guilt wash over me, as if I had done something seriously wrong. My gut feeling was blasting like an alarm inside of me, causing my heart to race a little. I hoped my friend wouldn't resent me for being rude. Once I got back home, I walked upstairs to my porch, unlocked the outside screen door, and proceeded to unlock my front door. While I was doing so, I felt watched. It was indeed a creepy feeling. I looked around and saw no one. To which I shrugged, assuming it was just a neighbor hiding under their dark porch, observing me as usual. The lock on my door jiggled open, and I twisted the handle and entered my house. 
As soon as I walked inside, I felt my feet tremble out from being tired. It was typical for me, as I tend to work long shifts at the office, ranging from 10 to 13 hours straight. I only worked three days a week, and this was my last day of the week, on a Friday. I turned on the lights, unpacked my bag, and put the leftovers I had from lunch that day into the refrigerator. I also changed my clothes and got myself a hot shower before plopping down on the sofa and turning on the TV to see if I could find anything interesting on the news. Nothing. I sighed, shaking my head, as I turned the TV back off and simply pulled up my laptop to browse the web. I typically watch YouTube to unwind after a long day. While watching my favorite videos, I kept remembering what my friend and teen said. After a while, curiosity got to me. I looked up on YouTube how to access the dark web, and I chuckled. Oh, this is simple, I said. Within five minutes, I already downloaded a secure VPN, anonymous viewer app, to hide my IP address with state-of-the-art defenses, and even through my own anti-malware and virus systems, just to be extra safe. I need to clarify before I continue. Remember, I am an expert computer tech, and I know my stuff. I can set up things like Flash on my own device involving phones, computers, or less common things like consoles. To clarify what I meant by consoles, I basically mean I sell modified Xboxes and PS4s. This may sound illegal, but I am very well known in my workforce, and half the money I make modifying Xboxes and PS4s with more powerful drives and better memory goes to Microsoft and Sony respectively as I have a part-time license with them that gives me the right to modify consoles and resell them. If you know what you're doing, it's a good way to make extra money on the side, as the consoles easily hit 1000 bucks. Anyway, once everything was set up, I strapped myself in and began to dive into the deep web. But something was off. The screen had nothing on it. It was completely pitch black. No search bar, no addresses, no site domains. I was confused as this wasn't typically what I heard of. Did I bypass the system into the hard drive of the deep web itself? I couldn't have. The deep web has a serious coding process, one even I can't break, but apparently I did. A big red text popped up on the screen and said, you shouldn't have done that. I paused in fear. At this point, my heart was in my mouth and I couldn't even hear my own breathing. The screen said something else. We see you. At this point, I was frozen in what felt like a statue made of concrete over my body. I couldn't move, and worse, I was afraid to look away from the screen. There was a window right behind the television, just in front of me. I was afraid to look up for fear that I might see something. Can you hear me too? I said in a hushed tone. The screen didn't respond. At least, not at first. Then, in a flash, the screen said something else. Look up. My eyes widened further than I thought was possible. I could feel my eyes straining as I slowly peeled my head away from the screen. To my horror, I saw something in the window. At first, I couldn't tell what this thing was. In my front yard is a pole with a bright light on it. It illuminated the figure as black as black can get. The thing stood at least 10 feet tall. 
I know because my window is at least 10 feet off the ground, elevated on a 4 foot slab of stone. The creature's face was not like anything I had seen. The body was black as tar, and thin, all the way to the bone. It had long fingers, big enough to wrap around my torso. The eyes of the creature were gray, with what it looked like red bars of code streaking through them in all directions like static. Every now and then, the creature's body jolted like static on the screen of a computer, and that's when the creature sprung to action. It broke through the window faster than any animalistic or humanly possible, toppled over my TV, and got right in my face, inches away from me. The creature's jaws unhinged, and a large gaping mouth was revealed with bright white teeth that chomped down onto me, followed by chilling screams of agony. I woke up with a fright, and I found it was the next morning. I'd fallen asleep late, apparently, and at first, I was under the impression that it was all a dream. I felt relieved, thinking that. I got up and made my way to the bathroom to clean up, only then to realize I had teeth impressions in my left shoulder and my right side, as well as claw marks here and there. Couldn't stop the feeling of terror as it hit me like a train. I ran out of the bathroom and saw my front window smashed, the TV still toppled over, and a trail of blood leading from the couch to my bed. I hadn't noticed it when I got up or walked out of my bedroom until now. I couldn't move yet again, and that's when I noticed something. The laptop was still on. It had been on all night. And as I walked closer, it read, We are always watching. Have you ever seen something so horrifying that you know deep down it will replay in your dreams forever? Some time ago, when I was just a boy, I had one dream, to finally meet the real Santa Claus. That December I had been completely obsessed with photography and video and had been recording and taking pictures of everything in sight. Yes, I had taken pictures of everything. The trees outside our home, our fireplace, and a bunch of burnt gingerbread cookies my mother had taught me to bake earlier in the week. I was a pretty straight-laced kid, and I was the last kid I knew to still believe in Santa Claus. Don't tell me you still believe that, my friend Chris had said, to which I replied nothing. I was a stubborn little boy, and I knew for a fact if I truly believed enough that I would indeed see something amazing after the clock struck midnight and became Christmas Day. I was right, sort of. If you would like to continue living in blissful ignorance, this is where you should stop listening. Maybe it's better if you don't know the truth. As I said, carrying around my camera was my thing, Ron Howard style. That year on Christmas Eve, I had planned to be the first child on earth to get concrete proof of Santa's existence. In my young mind, I'd seen newspapers and news channels around the globe showing my evidence. They would interview me, the little boy who had proven everyone wrong, and maybe then people would finally start to believe. That evening, my mother and father took turns tucking me into bed before shutting off the lights and heading back to their room. They had no idea what I had planned, and after hearing the door close gently with a click, I headed downstairs to scout out the living room. 
Where could I place the camera to give me the absolute best chance to get him on video? As the hour passed eventually, I moved the camera around and recorded various locations. The fireplace, the outside window, the kitchen where I placed the poorly made gingerbread cookies. Don't judge me, I tried my best. Time continued to pass and it wasn't until I first heard the clock strike midnight that something unexpected happened. I heard the basement door open slowly. That was odd. I thought Santa was supposed to come from the chimney. Part of me wanted to rush over and greet him, but I found a larger part of myself telling me to hide and wait to see what happened next. I chose my parents' couch in the corner of the room as my hiding spot, running behind it and peeking ever so slightly around its corner and towards the Christmas tree. Nothing happened for a few moments, and I began to wonder if I had just imagined the sound of the basement door creaking open altogether. And then I heard the whistling. But it wasn't jingle bells or anything like that. No, it wasn't cheerful, and it certainly didn't contain the holiday spirit. The snow had started falling more steadily outside, and for some reason the odd whistling had suddenly made me realize how completely isolated the three of us were out here. My father had bought the small cabin some time ago, the nearest neighbor being a half a mile away or more. It seemed even further in the blizzard. This was my first blizzard and I had been very excited about being snowed in for a few days. That was until the thought occurred to me of being snowed in with something else, something that had no business being there. The wind began to push against our secluded home as well, seeming to hit all sides at once. Wow. My parents could sleep through anything, it seemed. My eyes pulled away from the chaotic weather outside my home and back towards the basement door. And then I saw him, or should I say it, coming slowly closer. The figure was cloaked and seemed to float above the living room floor. Did I think about screaming? Yes. Yes, I did. Looking back, though, I give myself credit. I stayed calm. And perhaps this was still Santa after all. I decided to wait and see what happened. It seemed that the tall figure hadn't seen me peeking out from behind the couch because it kept on floating towards the Christmas tree and fireplace. Whatever it was, it began whistling again. And this time, I was able to identify the tune, Silent Night. The melody was off rhythm and was the only time in my life hearing the song made me feel uneasy. Very uneasy. I realize how insane this next part sounds, if we hadn't already gotten there. But I watched a tall figure near the Christmas tree. I could hear it sniff deeply. The tree swayed and shook against the force of the creature's nostrils. And then it began to speak. Come out, little boy. A shiver went up my spine. Had it seen me? There would be no hiding anymore. Taking a deep breath, I summoned the courage to stand. Come closer, the voice hissed. I took a small step. Closer, the snake-like voice continued. I heeded its words, walking forward until the tall figure stood directly in front of me. I felt small in its shadow, smaller than I had ever felt. Are you him? The creature made a soft and almost inaudible noise. Perhaps it was laughter, and then it pulled his cloak away to reveal itself. I fainted. When I came to, the creature was still standing where it had been, 
a soft grin plastered on his face. You aren't the first one to have fainted at the sight of me. You're lucky I didn't eat you. Eat me? I stammered. Yes, but that would be only fair. It's very offensive to faint at the sight of someone you know. I said nothing, only staring up at the creature. Though I tried to forget its form, I can still remember it clearly. It was thin, terribly thin, and its face was beyond imagining. Though its teeth were clearly visible, I could see no eyes, and what looked like thorns protruded from the crest of its head. Branches extended from the thing's body in all directions and dragged what looked like a sack behind it. To answer your question, no, I am not Santa Claus. The creature knelt down near me, and I could feel its icy breath push against my eyes and face. But I know him. You do? The creature nodded. Of course, he's my brother. The news that this terrifying monster was the brother of Santa took a long time for my childhood brain to process, at the end of which I was probably even more confused than before. How? The creature paused. Well, normally I don't share such things, but I admire your courage. It sighed, and it's been a long time since I've spoken to anyone, even a boy. It smiled, showing its sharp teeth, and then it continued. For every good act in this world, there is an evil one. For every kind gift, there must be an unkind. I bring a balance to the good my brother spreads. I bring... Evil? I whispered, finishing his words. The creature nodded as if pleased. You're a smart little boy. So far, I'm glad I haven't eaten you. My mind turned again. The next question popped up quickly in my mind. Truth be told, I didn't want to ask. So what evil have you brought us? There was a long silence before it replied. You are very wise. Are you sure you want to know? I nodded and it smiled back. Very well. Though my gifts will not take effect on this day, their influences will be felt through the next year and beyond. It pulled out a sack that followed closely behind him and set it on the floor before me. There was only one gift inside, which beyond closer look had my mother and father's name written neatly on a dark card that sat on top of the box. Open it if you dare, it whispered. As I knelt down next to the present, the room seemed to grow colder, and the wind swirled violently, not just outside the foggy glass. The lights flickered on and off as I began to unwrap the small box. I laid the wrapping paper down neatly, piece by piece, on top of the tree's red and white Christmas skirt. Looking up at the creature, I said two words. I'm afraid. Its long, thin arm reached out towards me then, finally setting on my closest shoulder. Though I could not see the creature's eyes, it seemed to gaze at me nonetheless. It seemed to be looking as it cocked its head from one side to the other. Look upon my face, little child. I've been deformed and misshapen by the evils that are mine to bear. I cannot change my form any more than you could change the fate of your family. All I can do is bear it. Though still afraid, I was suddenly overcome with great sympathy for the creature. I'm sorry. It seemed to be taken aback by the moment before replying. Don't be fooled, little child. I'm not fully innocent. 
The box before me broke open then, revealing a blinding shine of dark purple. The color of vibrant springs first bloom. It bathed the room in its deep shades as the box pulsated in front of my eyes. I couldn't help it. I looked. I looked deep into the calling purple, its worlds unseen. I saw the creature of my nightmares, monstrous, malevolent beings. Some as tall as the sky above, but worst of all, I saw my parents. It was a rainy winter day as my father drove home from work, his briefcase on the passenger seat and a worried look in his eyes as he squinted through the windshield. The rain came down in sheets. No, Dad. He couldn't see the large semi that had gently pulled beside him. It drifted closer into his lane, and then... Stop, I don't want to see, I cried up to the creature. But it was too late. The truck was overtaking my father and pushing his car into the bridge guardrail. I wish I could say he didn't suffer. A violent wave of purple as my eyes were taken elsewhere. A hospital. No, no, please. It was my mother receiving the cancer diagnosis and laying in the hospital bed. She stared out into the darkness. I can't take this, I told the creature. And maybe I imagined it, but to this day, I think it gave me a small look of pity. It knelt closer. She'll live. Why are you showing me this? I asked, holding back tears. The basement door opened again with a creak. The creature fell backwards onto the floor, striking his head and letting out a sigh. I realized then that as terrifying as this thing was, there was still one that even it must answer to. I must go. It whispered, pulling his cloak over its bony head and concealing his form once more. I watched as it floated back towards the basement steps, and then it said the words I will always remember. Be afraid for what is to come, child, but don't let it consume you as it has me. I watched as the figure began to fade away into the darkness, the last proof of its existence being the soft words that carried their way through the air and into my ears. For only in death and suffering will you find life.